Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. This is actually the last you're going to be hearing of me until July because this is Pride Month and I'm turning the show over to an authoress and readers from the LGBTQ plus community. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of this episode are available in my Google Drive. The link is in the show notes. The story I've selected and the story they'll be presenting is A Phantom Lover by Vernon Lee. Vernon Lee was born Violet Paget to British expatriate parents in Chateau Saint-Lenard-Boulogne in France. She was a staunch anti-war proponent during World War I and was a member of the Union of Democratic Control, an anti-militarist organization. She was a lesbian who engaged in intense long-term relationships with different women, including Clementina Kitt and Struther Thompson, with whom she developed the theory of psychological aesthetics, that spectators empathize with works of art when they call up memories and associations and cause often unconscious bodily change in posture and breathing. She was most known for her travel essays regarding Italy, France, Germany, and Switzerland. They were different from normal travel essays in that they attempted to capture the psychological effects of the places rather than just convey information. Vernon Lee died on February 13, 1935, having been ostracized primarily because of her opposition to World War I. She was later rediscovered in the 1990s due to a surge in feminist literature. And from here, I will turn everything over to our first reader. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. My name is Danielle Ellett, and I'll be reading chapters 1 and 2 of Vernon Lee's A Phantom Lover. If you enjoy my voice on this, you can find me in other works that are done by Good Point Podcasts or a variety of other shows I'm cast in. Please feel free to look me up on my website, which is goodpoint, with an E, podcasts.com forward slash Danielle Ellett. That's D-A-N-Y-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E-L-L-E
she had the most marvelous dimples here. There was something exquisite and uncanny about it. Yes, I began the picture, but that was never finished. I did the husband first. I wonder who has his likeness now. Help me move these pictures away from the wall. Thanks. Ah, this is her portrait. A huge wreck. I don't suppose you can make much of it. It's merely blocked in. Seems quite mad. You see, my idea was to make her leaning against a wall. There was one hung with yellow that seemed almost brown, so as to bring out the silhouette. It was very singular. I should have chosen that particular wall. It does look rather insane in this condition, but I like it. It has something of her. I would frame it and hang it up, only people would ask questions. Yes, you've guessed quite right. It is Mrs. Oak of Oakhurst. I forgot you had relations in that part of the country. Besides, I suppose the newspapers were full of it at the time. You didn't know it all took place under my eyes? <laughs> I can scarcely believe now that it did. It all seemed so distant. Vivid but unreal, like a thing of my own invention. It really was much stranger than anyone guessed. People could no more understand it than they could understand her. I doubt whether anyone actually ever understood Alice Oakes beside myself. You mustn't think me unfeeling. She was a marvelous, weird, exquisite creature. But one couldn't feel sorry for her. I felt much sorrier for the wretched creature of a husband. It seemed such an appropriate end for her. <laughs> I fancy she would have liked it, could she have known. <sighs> I shall never have another chance of painting such a portrait as I wanted. She seemed sent from me from heaven, or the other place. You've never heard the story in detail? Well, I don't usually mention it, because people are so brutally stupid or sentimental, but I'll tell it to you. Let me see. Well, it's too dark to paint anymore today anyways, so I can tell it to you now. Wait, I must turn her face to the wall. Oh, she was a marvelous creature. Chapter 2 you remember three years ago, my telling you that I had let myself in for painting a couple of Kentish Skyrenes? I really could not understand what had possessed me to say yes to that man. A friend of mine had brought him one day to my studio. Mr. Oak of Oakhurst. That was the name on his card. He was a very tall, very well-made, very good-looking young man with a beautiful fair complexion, beautiful fair mustache, and beautifully fitting clothes, absolutely like a hundred other young men you can see any day in the park, and absolutely uninteresting from the crown of his head to the tip of his boots. Mr. Oak, who had been a lieutenant in the blues before his marriage, was evidently extremely uncomfortable on finding himself in his studio. He felt misgivings about a man who could wear a velvet coat in town, but at the same time he was nervously anxious not to treat me in the very least like a tradesman. He walked around my place looking at everything with the most scrupulous attention, stammered out a few complimentary phrases, and then, looking at his friend for assistance, tried to come to the point but failed. 
The point, which the friend kindly explained, was that Mr. Oak was desirous to know whether my engagements would allow of my painting him and his wife, and what my terms would be. The poor man blushed perfectly crimson during this explanation, as if he had come up with the most improper proposal, and I noticed the only interesting thing about him, a very odd nervous frown between his eyebrows, a perfect double gash, a thing which usually means something abnormal. A mad doctor of my acquaintances calls it the manic frown. When I had answered, he suddenly burst out into a rather confused explanation. His wife, M Miss Oak, had seen some of my pictures, paintings, portraits, at the, uh, the, uh, what did you call it, academy. She had, in short, they had, made a very great impression upon her. Mrs. Oak had a great taste for art. She was, in short, extremely desirous of having her portrait and his painted by me, etc. My wife he suddenly added, is a remarkable woman. I don't know whether you will think her handsome. She isn't exactly, you know, but she's awfully strange. And Mr. Oak of Oakhurst gave a little sigh and frowned that curious frown as if so long a speech and so decided an expression of opinion had cost him a great deal. It was a rather unfortunate moment in my career. A very influential sitter of mine, you remember the fat lady with the crimson curtain behind her? Had come to the conclusion, or been persuaded, that I had painted her old and vulgar, which, in fact, she was. Her whole clique had turned against me. The newspapers had taken up the matter, and for the moment I was considered as a painter, to whose brushes no woman would trust her reputation. Things were going badly. So I snapped but too gladly at Mr. Oak's offer and settled to go down to Oakhurst at the end of a fortnight. But the door had scarcely closed upon my future sitter when I began to regret my rashness, and my disgust at the thought of wasting a whole summer upon the portrait of a totally uninteresting Kentish squire, and his doubtlessly equally uninteresting wife. It grew greater and greater as the time for execution approached. I remember so well the frightful temper in which I got into the train for Kent, and the even more frightful temper in which I got out of it at a little station nearer to Oakhurst. It was pouring floods. I felt a comfortable fury at the thought that my canvases would get nicely wetted before Mr. Oak's coachman had packed them on top of the wagonette. It was just what served me for coming out to this confounded place to paint these confounded people. We drove off in a steady downpour. The roads were a mass of yellow mud. The endless flat grazing grounds under the oak trees, after having been burnt to a cinder in the long drought, were turned into a hideous brown sop. The country seemed intolerably monotonous. My spirits sank lower and lower. I began to meditate upon the modern Gothic country houses and the usual amount of Morris furniture, liberty rugs, and maud novels to which I was doubtlessly being taken. My fancy pictured very vividly the five or six little oaks. That man certainly must have at least five children. The aunts and the sister-in-laws, the cousin, the eternal routine of afternoon tea and lawn tennis. Above all, it pictured Mrs. Oak, the bouncing, well-informed model housekeeper, electioneering, charity-organizing young lady, whom such an individual as Mr. Oak would regard in the light of a remarkable woman. And my spirit sank within me and I cursed my avarice in accepting the commission, my spiritlessness in not throwing it over while yet there was time. We had meanwhile driven into a large park. 
or rather a long succession of grazing grounds, dotted with large oaks under which the sheep were hurtled together for shelter from the rain. In the distance, blurred by the sheets of rain, was a line of low hills with a jagged fringe of bluish firs and a solitary windmill. It must be a good mile and a half since we had passed a house, and there was not one to be seen in the distance. Nothing but the undulation of surgrass sopped brown beneath the huge blackish oak trees and whence arose from all sides a vague, disconsolate bleeding. At last, the road made a sudden bend and disclosed what was evidently the home of my sitter. It was not what I expected. In a dip in the ground, a large red brick house with the rounded gables and high chimney stacks of the times of James I, a forlorn vast place, set in the middle of the pasture land, with no trace of garden before it and only a few trees indicating the possibility of one to the back, no lawn either, but on the other side of the sandy dip, which suggested a filled-up moat, a huge oak, short, hollow, and withering, blasted black branches upon only which a handful of leaves shook in the rain. It was not at all what I had pictured to myself the home of Mr. Oak of Oakhurst. Time for some water, because my mouth is dry. My host received me in the hall, a large place, paneled and carved, hung round with portraits up to its curious ceiling, vaulted and ribbed like the inside of a ship's hull. He looked even more blonde and pink and white, more absolutely mediocre in his tweed suit, and also, I thought, even more good-natured and duller. He took me into his study, a room hung round with whips and fishing tackle and places of books, while my things were being carried upstairs. It was very damp, and the fire was smoldering. He gave the embers a nervous kick with his foot and said, as he offered me a cigar, "'You must excuse me not introducing you at once to Mrs. Oak, my wife. In short, I believe my wife is asleep.' "'Is Mrs. Oak unwell?' I asked, a sudden hope flashing across me that I might be off this whole matter. "'Oh, no. Alice is quite well. At least, quite as well as she usually is. My wife—' he added after a minute in a very decided tone, does not enjoy very good health. A nervous condition. Oh, no, not at all ill. Nothing at all serious. You know, only nervous, the doctor says. Mustn't be worried or excited, the doctor says. Requires lots of repose. That sort of thing. There was a dead pause. This man depressed me. I knew not why. He had a listless, puzzled look, very much out of the keeping with this evident, admirable health and strength. "'I suppose you are a great sportsman?' I asked, from sheer despair, nodding in the direction of the whips and guns and fishing rods. "'Oh, no, <laughs> not now. I once was. I've given all that up,' he answered, standing with his back to the fire and staring at the polar bear beneath his feet. "'I, I have no time for all that now,' he added, as if an explanation were due." A married man, you know. Would would you like to come up to your rooms? He suddenly interrupted himself. I have had one arranged for you to paint in. My wife said you would prefer a north light. If that one doesn't suit, you can have your choice of any other. I followed him out of the study. 
through the vast entrance hall. In less than a minute, I was no longer thinking of Mr. and Mrs. Oak and the boredom of doing their likeness. I was simply overcome by the beauty of this house, which I had pictured modern and philistine. It was, without exception, the most perfect example of an old English manor house that I had ever seen, the most magnificent intrinsically, and the most admirably preserved. Out of the huge hall, with its immense fireplaces of delicately carved and inlaid gray and black stone, and its rows of family portraits, reaching from the waistcoating of the oaken ceiling, vaulted and ribbed like a ship's hull, opened the wide, flat-stepped staircase. The parapet surmounted at intervals by heraldic monsters, and the wall covered with oak carvings of coats of arms, leafage, and little mythological scenes, painted a faded red and blue, and picked out with tarnished gold, which harmonized with the tarnished blue and gold of the stamped leather that reached to the oak cornice, again delicately tinted and gilded. The beautifully damasked suits of court armor looked, without being at all rusty, as if no modern hand had ever touched them. The very rugs underfoot were a 16th-century Parisian make. The only thing of today were the big bunches of flowers and ferns arranged in manjolica dishes upon the landings. Everything was perfectly silent." Only from below came the chimes, silvery like an Italian palace fountain of an old-fashioned clock. It seemed to me that I was being led through the palace of the Sleeping Beauty. "'What a magnificent house!' I exclaimed, as I followed my host through a long corridor, also hung with leather, waistcoated with carvings, and furnished with big wedding coffers, and chairs that looked as if they come out of some Van Dyke portrait. In my mind was the strong impression that all this was natural, spontaneous, that it had about it nothing of the picturesqueness which swell studios had taught to rich and aesthetic houses. Mr. Oak misunderstood me. It is a nice old place, he said, but it's too large for us. You see, my wife's health does not allow for us having many guests, and there are no children. I thought I noticed a vague complaint in his voice, and he evidently was afraid there might have seen something of the kind, for he added immediately, I, I don't care for children, one jack straw. You know myself. <laughs> Can't understand how anyone can, for my part. If ever a man went out of his way to tell a lie, I said to myself, Mr. Oak of Oakhurst was doing so at the present moment. When he had left me to one of the two enormous rooms that were allotted to me, I threw myself into an armchair and tried to focus the extraordinary imaginative impression which this house had given me. I am very susceptible to such impressions. And besides, the sort of spasms of imagination, interest sometimes given to me by certain rare and eccentric personalities, I know nothing more subduing than the charm, quieter and less analytical, of any sort of complete and out-of-the-common-run of sorts house. To sit in a room like the one I was sitting in, with the figures of the tapestry glimmering gray and lilac and purple in the twilight, the great bed columned and curtain looming in the middle, and the embers reddening beneath the overhanging mantelpiece of the inlaid Italian stonework. A vague scent of rose leaves and spices put into the china bowls by the hands of ladies long since dead, while the clock downstairs sent up every now and then its faint silvery tune of forgotten days filled the room. To do this is a special kind of voluptuousness, peculiar and complex and indescribable, like the half-drunkenness of opium or hashish, and which, to be conveyed to others in any sense as I feel, it would require a genius, subtle and heady, like that of Baldair. 
After I dressed for dinner, I resumed my place in the armchair and resumed also my reverie, letting all these impressions of the past, which seemed faded, like the figures in the arias, but still warm, like the embers in the fireplace, still sweet and subtle, like the perfume of the dead rose leaves and the broken spices in the china bowls, permeate me and go to my head. Of Oak and of Oak's wife I did not think. I seemed quite alone, isolated from the world, separated from it in this exotic enjoyment. Gradually, the embers grew paler, the figures in the tapestry more shadowy, the columned and curtained bed loomed out vaguer, the room seemed to fill with grayness, and my eyes wandered to the mullioned, bowed window, beyond whose panes, between whose heavy stonework stretched a grayish-brown expanse of sore and sodden park grass, dotted with big oaks, while far off, beyond a jagged fringe of dark scotch firs, the wet sky was suffused with the blood-red of a sunset. Between the falling of the raindrops and the ivy outside, there came fainter, more sharper, the reoccurring bleeding of the lamb separated from the mother's, a forlorn, quavering, eerie little cry. I started up at a sudden rap at my door. "'Haven't you heard the gong for dinner?' asked Mr. Oak's voice. I had completely forgotten his existence. This has been Danielle Ellett reading chapters 1 and 2 of A Phantom Lover by Vernon Lee. Don't forget to check out Good Point and all the different shows that we offer there. My name is Danielle Ellett. Thank you for listening.